Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, people, so I'm back in L.A., and I have to tell you something. If you ever travel on the Thanksgiving time of the year, you have to fly back the day after Thanksgiving. Me and Joanne, we uh, flew out of Philadelphia International Airport Friday night. It's like 8 o'clock flight. No lie, we went to security, and this never happens. I've flown a lot. This has never happened. There was two people in front of us. That's it. Two people were walking through. It looks like a ghost town. There's like more TSA people than uh, travelers, and it was wonderful because we basically sat there, and we got right through security, got right on the plane. Luckily, for some reason, because she got the tickets with, with miles or points, we had priority seating, so it was it was a easy trip. Except when we got back to Joe's parking, that's where we parked at LAX. Someone wrote a, a letter because Joanne had a, a, a Hillary Clinton bumper magnet on her back, uh, whatever the back of her car, and someone wrote this long letter saying, "Do you know you have this letter?" It was very funny. Anyway, it was a great trip, and uh, I have a great guest today. I felt bad. I miscommunicated with him. He thought he was going to be on yesterday. It was my fault, but he's on today, and my guest is Liberty DeVito. How you doing, Liberty? I'm doing very well. Speaking, speaking of flights, my daughter flew out on Saturday. She flew from New York to Chicago, and she had a whole row herself. Isn't it amazing? I mean, people sit yeah. there. They go crazy. It's like it's like everyone goes back on that Sunday, and there was pictures in a, in – from Tuesday, I believe, in L.A., and the 405 yeah. was just, like, bumper to bumper. And I'm thinking, don't you know, like, like figure it out. Like, if, you, if you're going away and if you have vacation, take the vacation to two days before Thanksgiving because you kill a whole day of traveling and, and then you're just frazzled. Now, did, now did you, you, you're used to traveling. Have you traveled recently? I, uh, well, I, the last time I traveled was back in September. Uh, we went to Sicily. Okay. In a little bit of Italy, yeah. Because you're Italian, and I, I read that. And now, now, now you grew up in uh, New York, and, and your Yes, I did. And your father was a policeman, I believe. Yeah, I was a New York City policeman. Uh I actually, uh, right now, I live in the area that he actually uh, patrolled in. And, but when, we, when he became a policeman in the 50s, he moved us out to Long Island because he didn't want us to be in the city. Now, growing up with a, as a son of, as a police officer, were you, did, when you were very little, did you think you would become a cop? Or how did you start this whole passage into drumming and, and a lifetime career and a, an amazing career of drumming? How did it all happen? And as a kid, did you think, you know, because a lot of times, especially in New York and Philadelphia, families, cop families are, it's generations of police officers. Exactly. Um, but I, I never had the desire to become a cop. As a matter of fact, my father never had the desire to become a cop. Uh, after I was born, my mother told him, uh, that he had a family now, and he has to get a good job. He started to work at the Continental Can Company here in Brooklyn, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and then uh, he went to take the test to be a policeman because, uh, you know, you work for 20 years, you get a great uh, retirement, and you're, you're done. So he retired young, and uh, it all worked out. But I had never had the desire to become a policeman. Now, when did you get the desire to become a drummer? You know, it's funny. Um, my mother always loved music, 
But I asked my dad once, I said, Dad, why the drums? Why did, why did I start to play drums? Why did you buy me a set of drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know why the drums. I just so happened to have a cousin that was getting a new set of drums, and my parents said, you know, let's, let's give this a shot, <laughs> see what he does with them. So did you did you have any influences, or did you see anyone on on TV, or did you just sit there and start beating on the drums? I mean, how old were you when you, when this started? Well, well, that 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 started when I was uh, probably eleven, maybe something like that. I always loved music, always loved listening to the, you know back then it was only two AM stations here in New York, WNBC, uh, WABC, and WCBS, and um, so. Uh, no, WNBC and WABC. Those were the only two AM, AM stations that listened to music. But they played some great stuff. You know, like I loved the Orleans, I loved Dion. I loved listening to that stuff. But um, I, when they got me the drums, I joined the sixth grade school band. And um, the, I couldn't do the buzz roll in the Star Spangled Banner. So the teacher told me, you put down the sticks to veto, you'll never do anything with the drums. So I kind of got discouraged because I couldn't do the buzz roll. And I got discouraged because he said, I'll never do anything with the drums. So I kind of laid off for a while, and then it was, you know, that February in 64 when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, I said, hey, that's what I want to do. I want to be a band that makes girls scream. Forget the buzz roll. Right. <laughs> so so you decided, though, you said you when you watched them, did you decide you wanted to stay on the drums, or is that something you already had, you had focused on a little before, or did you think maybe you'll be able to singer or guitarist to get these girls? No, no, I, then I wanted to stay on the drums. And, you know, the next day, uh, I think like a million kids bought a guitar or something like that. So, you know, being a drummer already and having a set, that was it. You, you were the drummer. Yeah. Now, now you're sitting there, you start drumming, and now how do you decide you're going to pursue this career? Because, you know, it's not like now. Now you can just put a thing on YouTube, someone will find you. But then, how did you sit there and decide, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I want to, I want to get the girls. I'm going to be a drummer. Where did you where did you go? Did you go to form a band or what happened? <clears throat> well, the next thing that happened was my mother said, "Okay, if you want to play drums, why don't you try taking lessons?" So she sent me to a store, local music store, to take lessons with this guy, and uh, he was teaching me how to play, you know, like jazz. And I said, "What are you going to teach me how to play like Ringo?" And he said, "Why do you want to learn how to play like him? He stinks." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I saw girls screaming for him last night, and nobody's beating down your door today." And so. <laughs> That was the end of my lessons. I, I am self-taught. I, uh, records became my books. And I would listen to what the drummer was doing, trying to figure out what the drummer was doing. But uh, one of the things that happened was uh, I couldn't read or write music. So how was I to know where I was in the song at the time? So I would learn the lyrics of the song. And I would sing along with it as I was playing the drums. That's when I noticed that the drummer usually does his drum fills when the singer stops singing, or to take the band to a, a more exciting place like the chorus or the or the bridge of a song, and I kind of adopted that all my life. You know, even in the studio with Billy. So, so you're self-taught, you said, and you just you basically picked it up by observing. But how? I mean, when it's self-taught, I wonder because you know I'm always fascinated by drummers because you know you not only have you know you got to play the cymbal and the hi hat and you got to work your feet and you got to use both ends how do you self teach yourself i mean you have to be mightily coordinated but how do you 
self-teach like the the moving of the hands and the feet and making it all working together? <laughs> That's a funny question. But uh, I got to say, my mom was a great influence on that. When I used to come upstairs because I couldn't do something, you know, upstairs from the basement, and she would just take me by the shoulders, turn me around, and say, go back downstairs and start slow. Do it slow first, and then start to build up your speed. And that's kind of how I did it. I, I would listen to what the drummer was doing, and then I would kind of try to copy it. Now, what were some of the albums you were teaching yourself off? Were you listening to Beatles albums, or what, what was some of the music that you were sitting there going, I want to get this down because this is a good drum lick? And who were some of the drummers when you were learning that you really admired? Well, uh, in, the, in the beginning, before, you know, when that teacher told me that put that in the sticks, I couldn't do the buzz roll. Uh, I, I remember one of the first records I ever was playing to was a song called Easier Said Than Done by the Essex. Because it had this little drum fill in it. <laughs> that was so cool. Uh, you know, I, I played the songs like that. But then when the Beatles came out, it was all the Beatle records. And then it went on to, you know, like oh, the Dave Clock Five. I loved them. And, uh, it, you know, all those drummers. And then after Ringo came Dino Danelli. Because, you know, Dino Danelli was in The Young Rascals. Now, when the Beatles came out, I wanted to be like Ringo. and I wanted, to, But I had a hard time relating to these guys who were from England. You know, at the time, I don't know how old you are or how old your listeners are, but at the time when the Beatles came from England, they could have come from Mars. It was that far away. Okay. And they looked, they looked totally different. And, uh, you know, the hair was straight, and they had this, this great-looking hair and these accents. And I was an Italian kid from Long Island. How can you relate to that? You know? So... But I, but I was practicing to Ringo's drums. So, but when the Rascals came out, the Rascals, out of four guys, three of them were Italian. <laughs> That's where I put my hooks in deep, you know? Now, now who was who Dino Donnelli? Was he, was he, did he become, I mean, was he a, a, a powerhouse drummer or? Oh, oh yeah. Dino Donnelli drove the, the Rascals. He, he drummed, like, really, really strong. The Rascals were only a, a, a three three uh, instruments. There were organ, drums, and, and guitar. Not even a bass guitar. Felix Cavalieri played the bass with his feet on the Hammond organ. And they had Eddie Bugatti, who was the lead, one of the lead singers. So, you know, to, to see them, and he, Dino was the first one that ever flipped the sticks and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it was powerful. So it's good. So you made a connection. It was another Italian. You said, okay, I, I can yeah. do this. I can do this. So now, so then where do you go from there? Because it's, once again, it's not like these days where you can put an ad out on Craigslist, I want to join a band. I mean, where do you go? You're practicing. You're getting good. You now have someone that you know that, you know, is someone who's an, a fellow Italian, a guy who's drumming. You know, it's, it's attainable. Yeah. You don't have to be English. Where do you go? Where do you start to follow up to get your career going? Well, after, after the, when the Beatles were on the Atelier show, me and a couple of friends from Seaford, Long Island, where I grew up, got together and started a band. But we did all instrumentals. We were like the Ventures. You know, we did that kind of stuff. We didn't have a lead singer. But when the Rascals came out, you had to have a lead singer. So um, I, that's when I started to go in different bands, like the guys from the town next to mine. They heard me play somewhere in like a school dance. And then they wanted me to join their band, which I did. 
And at like 16 years old, I'm starting to play in bars now around town. Um, and then the next drummer that put me over the top was another Italian fe- fellow named Carmine Apiece. He was just on my show two weeks ago. Yes. He was with the Vanilla Fudge at the time. And uh, I remember standing online uh, to go see a friend's band from my school called the New Rock Workshop. And uh, it was like uh, the people in my school were talking about how great this band was. And it was fantastic, blah, 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 this whole thing. And I'm standing online and the lead singer, Ronnie, comes walking out of the club, sees me online and says, Oh, good. I'm glad you're here. Our drummer's leaving. He's got drafted, and, and, and we need a new drummer. So it was like I went into the New Rock Workshop. It was more like psychedelic stuff. They really loved the fudge. So one night in the club that I was at, playing at, the fudge, we were going to open up for the fudge. And somebody said that the fudge were playing in another club not far away. Would you like to go see them? And I said, yeah. Well, I walked into the club and I saw this band and I saw Carmine and Peace play and I got scared because he was so good. What made him so good that would intimidate you? Was it just his just his timing or what 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 was sitting there when you sat there and went, holy crap, this guy, this guy is a monster. His, his power, the power that he played with. First of all, his drums were huge. I think he had like a 28 inch bass drum. It was huge, and he played so powerful that it just freaked me out. Like, holy cow. I didn't know that a band could be driven so hard by the drummer. It was great. So did you watch that and sit there and say, I want to up my level, I want to play more powerful? What did that do to you? Yeah, well, um, actually, it wasn't long after that that I became friends with all those guys, and... Uh, I started to jam Vinnie Martell, who was the guitar player in the Vanilla Fudge. And um, it just so happens we were jamming in a back room uh, where his management was. The management company was up front. They had their offices up front, and they had a back room where they would jam. Me, my friend Ivan, who went on to play with uh, Patti Smith and... uh, Not Patti Smith, Patti Smith, whatever her name was. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, yeah. And, um, and Vinnie Martell. And one day these guys walked in and they were asking if they knew any, uh, if anybody knew of any drummers. They needed to replace their drummer. And the guy at the front said, there's a kid in the back that plays pretty good. And it turned out that the band was the Detroit Wheels. Coming, <laughs> they were getting, Johnny B was leaving the Detroit Wheels. And um, so I got the gig with the Detroit Wheels which led to a gig with Mitch Ryder himself. Now, what's that like? Because you're, that, you're a young guy, and, and it must be just, I mean, it, it happened pretty, you know, pretty uh, on the whim. I, I was, I, yeah, I was 18 years old. I uh, just got out of high school in, in that uh, June, turned 18 in August, and this is like October, November. And I get a phone call, and the, the guy says, uh, his name, and he says, I'm uh, Mitch Ryder's tour manager. Uh, our drummer is sick. Can you come and play? We heard you, you are good. And I said, um, when do you need me? And they said, tonight. And I said, can I come tomorrow? My father has to drive me in the city. I don't even have my driver's license yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, so the next day I went into the city, uh, got to, on the bus with the band, got to the gig, and the sax player said, I will cue you. Don't worry about anything. I'll cue you. Luckily, I was a big fan of Mitch's. I knew a lot of his stuff already. You know, I was listening to that stuff all the time. So um, it, it was great. We did the show, and I ended up staying with him for six weeks up and down the East Coast. Now, what's that like, being 18, being on the road, being with someone that you listened to and were a fan of? I mean, it must be really surreal just sitting there all of a sudden, you know, every night you're gigging, and they're good gigs because it's a known person. I mean, how do you handle that at 18? It was an unbelievable experience to be playing behind a guy that I had seen play live before, and I had listened to his records all the time, and uh, just to be able to do those six weeks. You know, it's funny, too. It's that the drummer that was sick was Johnny Siomis, who went on to play with Frampton Comes Alive. He played on that record. So all, all these drummers, all those guys, we kind of, like, connected in a a certain way and went on to other successes too. So after you play with Mitch, it's six weeks, you got to feel, you got to feel like your game's tight. I mean, cause you're out there, you're, you're pounding it, you know, you're, you're, you're being live. I mean, it's the best thing you're playing every night to good crowds. Where do you go from there? And when, what do you sit there in your mind? Do you think, wow, I'm 18. I just played with Mitch Ryder. What can else can I do? What, what's, what's better than this? Well, the, th- the thing is that, not only was that great, a great experience and everything like that, but now I had a name that I could hang on to. Like when somebody says, well, what have you done? Well, I played with Mitch Ryder for six weeks. Right. So it was like, the next thing was to go on to, uh, uh, I remember auditioning for Richie Super. Uh, Richie Super was in a band called the Rich Kids on Long Island. They were kind of like the Rascals and the Vagrants and stuff like that. Long Island was really uh, a big, uh, place in the 60s for, for great music. And um, Richie Super actually went on to write songs with, for Aerosmith. He wrote Pink, uh, Chip Away at the Stone, a um, bunch of other songs like that. But when I got the call from Richie, he said, well, what have you done? And I said, oh, I played with Mitch Ryder. And it was like, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, I remember Billy, Billy Joel, uh, the first gig we ever did before we went on stage, he said, you played in, in front of a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah, you played with Mitch Ryder. Yeah, you played in front of a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> so you sit so you there, you're, you're, get, you're getting work with the Mitch Ryder card, which is awesome. Now, now how long yeah. did you play for the Rich Kids? Well, it, uh, it was super did a solo record. This is the first time now I went into the studio. He, he recorded with Buddy Bowie, and uh, Buddy Bowie was in a, a, a studio called Studio One down in Atlanta. And he, Buddy Bowie, produced uh, the, the Classics Four records. And the band that played on the Classics Four records eventually became the Atlanta Rhythm Section. So um, we were kind of like playing with them. They were playing on the record, too. So that was my first experience of being in a studio and making a real studio album. It came out on Paramount Records. Uh, didn't do much, but it was a great experience. How did you acclimate going from playing live to playing in the studio where it's it's a longer session? I mean, were you were you a natural at it right away, or did you feel a little awkward when you first started doing it? 
Oh, no, um, I was a little awkward. Um, I, I was learning. Robert Nix was the drummer in uh, in the, the band, uh, the Atlanta Room section. And so I watched and listened to him, and I could see how every note that he played counted when he played on a record. And he played strong, but he played a whole lot less than you would play live because, uh, you know, just just held the groove together. So I learned that from him. And um, he was a great teacher. It's too bad he's passed away, you know. So you get done, you get done, you're getting this, you're getting now, you, you have the, the playing in front of live people, uh, big people, you got the studio. So now where, when along, when along this road do you meet Billy Joel and who were you playing for when you met him and how did you guys end up working together? Well, now I come back to uh, New York. Uh, Richie Supa actually decides after a year or two to go on his own and to go and record uh, another album by himself. So um, I start a band with Russell Jabbers and Doug Stegmeyer, who went on to play with Billy too, called Topper. Now Topper was doing all original material. This is this is 1973, maybe 73, 72, 73. And I'm playing with Topper. We're doing all original material, but I'm starving to death. So I started. I got into a band that was called Blue Hair, believe it or not. Local guys from Seaford, Long Island. And uh, it was a three-piece band. They did all cover tunes. And we played clubs. I made so much money and worked so much that I had no time to spend it. And so I was working with them, and we were doing Topper at the same time. After uh, that happened, I played weddings also to, to make money. I played weddings for two and a half years. That's where I learned the most about drumming was in the weddings. How? Well, I mean, what, you had a, what made you learn well, so much? Well, the, the first day, a, a friend of mine played the weddings. He, he was at this, this place called the Narragansett, the Narragansett Inn, which was on Long Island. It was a catering hall. So he played weddings, and he always asked me to sit in for him. Will you sit in for me? Will you sit? No, I'm not sitting in for you. So one day he said, you're doing it this weekend. He made me an offer I couldn't refuse, you know, one of those. So I, uh, he lent me his tuxedo. I had hair down to my shoulders. And um, so I go to the gig with this stupid <laughs> tuxedo on, and I'm using his drums. And uh, I get there, and there's an accordion player, a, a trumpet player, and a sax player. That was it, and me playing drums. Now, I sit back there. And, uh, these guys are much older than I am, too, at the time. And I, I'm sitting behind the drum set, and I'm looking at these guys like, oh, my God, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. I played with Mitch Ryder. My career is over. This is stupid. This is really stupid. The trumpet player turns around and looks at the band and says, the bride wants the band to start with a merengue. I said, what the hell is a merengue? I thought it was something you eat, you know? So... You know, I, they just gave me a basic idea of what it was, and I kind of played this thing that was, was cool, that's it. But there, I had to learn bossa novas, I had to learn how to play swing, I had to learn how to play all this different stuff. It was not just rock and roll anymore, you know? So, I learned a lot. And when people ask me, you know, how did you come up with the brush and stick thing on just the way you are? Well, it was easy. That's how you play bossa nova with a brush and a stick, you know? <laughs> so now, now, when you were a topper... 
Topper, right? How did, how, were you co-writing the music, or how did you guys come up with your original ideas? Well, Russell Jabbers was the songwriter in Topper. But uh, when me and Doug played together, and Russell, it, we had a style. Now, Billy had seen us play. Uh, Doug had gotten the gig with Billy. We were playing a gig one night with Topper, and the next thing Doug says is that he just got a road gig with this guy, Billy Joe, right? So, and he said, I'm leaving for California. I just got a road gig with Billy Joe. Great. We have a party. While Doug's on the road with Billy, Billy says to him, I want to move back to New York, and I want a New York-style drummer, and I want you, Doug, and I want a New York-style drummer, and I want the same band to go on the road with me that records with me. So Doug says, well, you know the drummer. You've met him. <laughs> you know? So I had an audition with a couple of other guys, but I had gotten the gig because I learned all the old stuff. Billy had Piano Man and Street Life out, so I learned the songs off that. And then he said, I got some new songs that I want to record. What would you come up with? What could you come up with? And he was amazed how fast I came up with stuff. And he didn't know for 25 years that Doug had given me a tape of all his new stuff before I went for the audition. <laughs> he probably thought you were a genius. He's like, oh, my God, this guy's clairvoyant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's reading me. I'm frightened. So we go in the studio anyway, and we start recording. And we're listening back. It was just me, Doug, and Billy in the studio, just three piece. And when we listen back, Billy would go, well, I really like some guitar in this. Do you guys know any guitar players? Yeah, we do. And that's how eventually, with the addition of uh, Richie Kanata, the Topper band became Billy's band. So that's, so that's great because you guys, you already have been playing together. You had the trust in each other. So it must have been easy for him to sit there. It's like, it's like a quarterback going to another team when the whole starting line is already solidified. So that's the way it was, and it it was it was great. So now, when you started playing for Billy, I know you played for him for many years. He had Piano Man, but they they weren't. I mean, that was a huge song. But did you ever sit there and think that it would he would just become this massive icon, and then all of a sudden, you know, you'd be an icon too? I mean, <laughs> what did you ever think that yeah. when when you first sat there and he said? Hey, you know, I got this. I mean, what what was going through your mind, and did you what did you think the future was going to be? No, I I, I thought. Listen, this is. I was into R and B at the time. You know, I was listening to Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, The Meters, because the guys from Mitch Ryder. When I when I left, I said, "What what can make me better?" And they said, "Get uh, albums by The Meters. You know, do that, and um, you know, stay away from funk and stuff like that." So I was listening to all that kind of stuff, with Sam and Dave, all that stuff. And my mother used to listen to me practicing it downstairs. So when I started to practice to the Billy Joel records, she came downstairs and says, what, what is this? And I said, this is the guy I'm going to audition for. And she says, you're going to play with him? <laughs> like, <laughs> 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 so I was like... Yeah, I'm going to play with him. He's he got a following, you know. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was cool, you know, and then just it was just cool. And then, yeah. 
Now, now, when he was when you started playing with him on the road, what kind of crowds was he playing? Were they the same size as Mitch Ryder? Were they smaller? And I mean, it's of course it's a different world than the playing, you know, weddings. Even though you learn so much, I mean, what was it like when you guys first went out on the road? What were the what were the gigs like? Were they were they big or small or what were they like? The first place we played was a place in Boulder, Colorado, called the Good Earth. It was a club. And we played Danny Seraphine's club in Chicago, which was called Chicago. Uh, we were doing like things like that, small uh, clubs. And we were opening for bands, too. Uh, when Turnstiles came out, we were opening for bands. Uh, we opened for Hall & Oates. We opened for Lions and Messina. We opened for ZZ Top once. And we did a lot of openings for the Beach Boys, which was a horror show because there was no billing. And the house lights would go, you'd be at Chicago Stadium, the house lights would go out, and people think the Beach Boys are coming on stage. And the house lights come on. And you can hear people like going, yeah, 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 yeah. The house lights come on, they see something, ah. <laughs> How do you how do you adjust to that, man? I mean, it's like I know you know you know what you're getting into because it's the Beach Boys. But how do you sit there? How does your psyche deal with that? Because even though you know you're thinking we're playing in front of all these people, we have to do good. Uh, well, well, I think some of it came from the experiences that we had playing the Battle of the Bands at school. It was like, <laughs> well, you just got to go for it, man, because you know there might be a girl in the front row that you can hook up with tonight. So just play your ass off. So, so as you're playing these, you're playing these clubs and you're opening for people. When does the momentum start changing? Where you guys start, you know, playing your own tour? I mean, how long did it take for that to happen? Well, we um, after that Beach Boy thing, it was pretty much a horror show for Billy because all the reviewers were saying, "Oh, the Beach Boys opening act thinks he's Elton John," you know, because they were comparing him to Elton John. And I remember one night, Billy, you know, we, we had a few much. A couple of drinks before it went on. And he said, when the house lights came on, he goes, if there's any reviewers out there comparing me to Elton John, and he flipped them the, all the bird. Well, that, was, that got in the review, you know. So uh, this agent said, look, you guys should be playing small theaters. Uh, and not opening up for bands. You should be playing small theaters. Because the, the piano man was, was a cult kid, you know. So that's when we started to play, like, the Academy of Music in Philly. And... Um, Theaters like that. Uh, uh, we actually played um, Carnegie Hall when we played in New York because the following in New York was, was pretty cool. We played the bottom line first, and then we played Carnegie Hall. And um, that's where Phil Ramone saw us, was at Carnegie Hall. And then Phil liked the band, and he produced The Stranger, which put us over the top. Now, it's funny. I rem always remember The Stranger because my older brother had a, uh, and well, I am from New Jersey, so he, had a, he bought a used white Camaro, and he had an eight-track tape player, and he had Steely Dan Asia, the Boston uh, first album, and Billy Joel, yeah. The Stranger. And I remember listening to them on eight-tracks, and I'd always get pissed off with the eight-tracks because then sometimes in the yeah. middle of the song, it would click to the next program. You'd be like, what the hell? It'd be like, do, do, do. And you'd be like, Christ, what is that stuff? Right. Right in the middle, we cut it right in half. Right? Yeah, it'd be like, what are you, who's, who's making these things up? No wonder they didn't last. No. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. 
Now, now, when the stranger but, uh, came, when the stranger came out, did did you think it would be? I mean, when you listened to it, when you were playing on it, did you have any inkling that it would become this huge? I mean, huge album. I mean, and and I mean, what were you thinking when you guys first released that? What was your? What did you think it would do? Um, we thought. Well, first of all, the song that actually took it over the top. The, the songs were written while we were on the road. I mean, the ideas came when we were on the road. We used to go and on the Turnstiles tour, we would check into like a Holiday Inn, and then we'd all go meet by the pool, you know, that was outside. And me and Richie Canada would play like these characters, like I was the cousin that just drove out from from Brooklyn out to Long Island, and Billy, it was the cousin that owned this gigantic house and with a pool in the backyard, and Richie would be the, the grandmother with the, the napkin up the sleeve and, and continually, you know, wiping her mouth and stuff like that. And, and, and Billy would say, we'd say, man, this is great what you did to the place. It's unbelievable. And he'd be like, well, when you come inside, I'll show you the basement. I have the finish, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then he would tell us, he'd go, Mama, come, when are you moving out here? Come on, when are you going to move out of the city? You know, and that became the song Moving Out. Wow. You know, yeah. So um, that, that was one. And Just the Way You Are, I remember him, uh, Doug coming out of a, a, a bar one night where we used to hang out. And Doug said, he wrote the song. He wrote the song. And Billy, we went outside in front of the bar. And with no piano, just his fingers moving. He sang me Moving Out. I mean, Just the Way You Are. And um, it was like, whoa, that's, that's a really good song. It's a pretty love song. Now, when we recorded it, we were a rock band. We wanted to be a rock band. So we recorded it, and it's kind of like coming out with a, uh, with a samba and all that kind of stuff. And when we got done with the album, we, we, we listened to it, and it was like, ah, that's terrible. You know, it's kind of wimpy and all that kind of stuff. But it was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't put it on the album. Well, Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Smith came in the studio, and Phil Ramon played them just the way you are. And one of them said, if you put that song on your album, you will get more girls than you know what to do with. <laughs> Bam! It went right on the album. <laughs> no questions asked, man. <laughs> no questions That's it. No, no questions asked. And it actually, it, it, that became, it came true, that whole thing, you know? That was the one that went over the top. Now... Yeah. Now, what is that like? I mean, you have this album, and, you know, as I said, what is it like when you're, and you're still a young guy, what is it like when all yeah. of a sudden you start seeing, I mean, the, the, the sales were just going up and up, and all of a sudden, it, you, you basically, you're going from being known, as you said, and also, he had a crowd in New York, and, a, and Philly, he had a good following of Philly, because we used to hear him on MMR, and he would play it live from the right, bottom yeah. line and stuff like that, but... What is that like? I mean, when you're sitting there and you're involved in the middle of this and you're the drummer and you just start seeing this bubble just getting bigger and bigger, I mean, how do you try to stay grounded and, and how does it affect your life? Well, the, the, the funny thing was is that when, when the album came out, I remember that the, they were going to start playing it on this certain day. So I, I think we were on the road, but Phil had come with us and... I remember standing in a kitchen to a hotel restaurant and they had the radio on and they were playing the entire album 
on the radio. And we're in this kitchen in this hotel the first time we hear the album on the radio. And um, so, and we thought, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. I remember thinking moving out was you know, like, that, that's really good. But the other stuff, you know, my mother heard Just The Way You Are before um, we recorded it. She heard it at Carnegie Hall on the Turnstile store. We were doing Just The Way You Are in the show and seeing from an Italian restaurant. And she heard Just The Way You Are and she said, you tell Billy, if you put that out on the record, that, that battle, you guys will go big. You guys will go big. <laughs> so I said, Ma, if it comes true, I'm giving you the gold record. I'll give you the gold record. Well, she had the gold record on the wall for a long time. You know? <laughs> now, now so, go ahead. But um, I remember playing in uh, Washington, D.C. at the um, Woman's War Memorial or something like that. And we came, we walked out the door. And as we walked out the door, Billy got mobbed by all these girls. And I kind of was outside the circle of the girls. And I caught Billy's eye. And he was just smiling, and I and that's when I said in my head, I said, "That's it, we did it, we we are there." Now, now, what the scenes from Italian restaurant? I mean, I love that song. That was like for back then. That was sort of a ballsy song because it was longer. I mean, what made you guys think when you're putting the album together to have this longer song on there? Because you know, back in the radio, if it wasn't like Jungle Land or Freebird or Stairway to Heaven, you didn't have longer songs as much in that time. Right. Well. Um, we were doing just Brenda and Eddie for, for the longest time, just that section live. Um, and then it was later on that he came in with the, with the rest of the stuff, with the, the beginning of the song and the bottle of red or bottle of white. Uh, so Phil, it was just, it wasn't ever meant to be a single or anything. It was just a piece on an album, but it just so happened that FM radio made it take off. Now, now, what was it like all of a sudden when you start playing, you know, after having a nightmare of opening up for the Beach Boys, you know, just nothing. Yeah. What is it like now when you when you roll into, you know, let's say Madison Square Garden or, you know, Nassau Coliseum? I mean, that's that's your that's your hood, man. That's what you're from. Right. What, what is it like when you first started headlining those? I mean, was it just an amazing feeling? It was like, man, I've made it. I'm playing places where, as a kid, I never would think I would play. Let me tell you something. I was freaking out because I, I wanted to do this so badly when I was in high school that I have my high school yearbook, 1968 I graduated in, and guys had written in there, keep practicing and keep your head, and one day I'll see you at the garden. You know, like that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking about all this when I'm playing Madison Square Garden. I was like, Holy cow, the dream really did come true. Now, you're sitting there, and then you're, you know, now you're going around the world. I mean, what's that like for a kid from Long Island? All of a sudden, you know, you know, I mean, remember, playing with Mitch Riders was your calling card when you were younger. What's it like when you're, like, right. around the world? I mean, you're, you're with the, you know, you're in the, basically the biggest band at one point in the, in the world. What is that like when you yeah. sit there, and you're on your jet, and you're going to your hotel and you're going to a sound check and there you know you're gonna have people that don't even some of them don't even speak english that are just digging the music and digging your drums how do you how do you keep that in context i mean how do you how do you even keep a level head how do you not let it go to your head at all well because all the way up from from turnstiles all the way up to the bridge album which was 
uh, 10, 9, 10 albums or something like that. We were the same guys that were topper. I knew Russell when he was 15 years old. And, and so we knew each other for a really long time. So we never really thought of it. We always thought of it as, as a group of guys that came from Long Island that were just doing what we loved to do. But with that comes a big responsibility when you start to travel the world. You become an ambassador to the United States, you know, like they're looking at you as, as this is, represents America and American music. Um, so when you talk to people, especially in, like in Japan, when you talk to them and they don't know what a big shot is, but they love the song, you know, it's funny to have to explain to them what a big shot is because you take things for granted here. And, um, you know, so, so that was really interesting. But, um, you, you, you give everybody a money's worth because as we built, you know, it's like you play Carnegie Hall, you play hard because the next time you come back, you want to play the garden. You play the garden, then you play really hard again. You, so you do multiple dates at the garden. Then you play really hard so you can play those multiple dates and then go to this, this Jay Stadium or Yankee Stadium. You know, that, that you keep playing hard. What's it like for a New Yorker to play in Shea or Yankee Stadium? I mean, what is it like to just sit there? And what is it like And from, because as a drummer, you have a certain vantage point. I know you know my friend Rich Redman, and Rich has sent me pictures yeah. where, you know, he sent me a picture from Fenway, where it's just like, you guys are up higher than everybody. You're the drummer. You have a different view than everyone else. What's that like? I mean, do you, can you even see any faces or you just see lights or do you imagine maybe who this person watching you is? I mean, what do you see from your drum when you're at a Shea or a Yankee Stadium or let's say when the vet was open in Philly? What do you see? What is your viewpoint or your, your eye line from that drum set? You can maybe see the first three rows of faces maybe. But then everything else, but when you look way, way back, you know, you think, holy cow, how many people are here? You know? And and the thing that, about being a drummer, like I'm sure Rich will tell you the same thing, it's like when those people start rocking, they're rocking to your beat. I mean, they might love the song, but you're the one that's getting them up off their butts. It's you're the drummer. So all those people, we played Madison Square Garden one night, and the building was going up and down because people were jumping up and down so much. You know, that, that, that is really uh, something that, to, to feel, like you did that, do, you know? Do you physically feel it on stage when you're jumping up and down? And, when you, and if you do feel it, does that even fuel you to play the drums harder? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, playing live is an exchange. You play a song, the crowd reacts. They react great. You play the next song better, you know. Um, we people always ask us, "How did you always keep it fresh?" You know, and 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 make like it's the first time you played it. Well, we used to um, when we played like coliseums or, or places like that. We would uh, hold, Billy would hold the first two rows of, of tickets, and be, before the show would start, right before it, about a half hour before crew would go up to the nosebleed seats and find the prettiest girls and give them, they'd say, you want to go sit in the first two rows? So like every time we came out, and because you could only see like the first two rows, when the lights come on, us, 
you see the first two rows, and it's all these great-looking girls. So it's like, hey, I'm going to play great tonight. <laughs> now, now, in, in, in your, in your, in, from memory, what do you think is the biggest crowd, the biggest crowd you ever played? Well, let's see. The biggest crowd we ever played to. I'd have to say it's either uh, Giant Stadium or JFK Stadium in Philadelphia when we played with Elton. Now, I, I remember going, I, I, JFK used to have great concerts, and, but when you think about it, it was, it was sort of beaten up. That's why they tore it down. What is it like to play an outside venue like that? I mean, it's like, it's open air. It's uh, Usually they have the concerts in the summer, so it's humid as all hell. I mean, how, how do you, as a drummer, I know you're focused, but, you know, when it's open air, unfortunately, the music rises up. I know it goes up, but it rises up. How, how would you figure out how to play an open air, huge venue, a smaller venue, or did you always sit there and play it exactly the same? Well, with Billy, uh, you didn't jam. You know what I mean? There was no room for jamming in the middle of a song. But, um, you know, you could change a couple of fills here and there. Because there's certain fills that the, you see the crowd do, when, like that fill in Still Rock and Roll to Me, when it goes to the straight four from the shuffle. It's, I see the crowd do it. You know, everybody moves their arms. So if I did something different there, they'd be disappointed. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, you just, um, you, you adjust yourself to the, to the size of the room. I mean, the ceilings keep getting higher, your arms keep getting higher. I always played to the back of the room. You know, so, somebody paid a lot of money to come see us. So let's play to the back of the room. People in front can see what's going on. People in the back, over-exaggerate you know? Yeah, now, you're on the road. What's some of the craziest things that ever happened to you? Because, you know, like, I mean, and did you get a lot of free stuff? You know, when you're, when you're a rocker, do you get a lot of free upgrades and flights like that? I mean, what, what, did you ever have some crazy-ass fans that just, you went, oh, my God. I love my job, but this just isn't worth it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, crazy shit that happened was, uh, let's say, you dri- I got arrested for driving a car into a hotel. So that was like crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we set fireworks off in a hotel once, and it cost us a lot of money because it, we, we didn't mess with the place. You know, um, so, you know, you got a lot of time on your hands in a hotel. <laughs> But um, stuff for free. I remember when I had this this beautiful symbol, and I, I really loved it. It sounded great. And I remember when I broke it, I I cried when I broke it. It was so beautiful. And then to have to go buy a new one it was like, whoa! I'm not making that much money to buy a new symbol, you know. Then when you start making money, everybody's giving you stuff for nothing, <laughs> just so they could use the name, you know. <laughs> Now, so it's it's really funny, and isn't that weird? Yeah, it's like yeah, when when you're struggling, you get nothing for free, but when you don't need it, you get everything for free. Everything. Now, besides Billy, you've played in studio with a lot of people. How how did your relationships with the different people in studio you play with start? And would people approach you? Because I look at your list, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it says you know, there's been a bunch of people you, you played with. How would how would that end up happening? Yeah, like you say, you look at the list and, and like there's Bob James on there and, and Dave Grusin and people like that. You're thinking like, I just got to get to play with them. Well, they used to come. Well, Phil Ramone used us on a lot of different albums. 
after the Billy albums were recorded, like we recorded with Phoebe Snow, we recorded with with Karen Carpenter. Uh, I played with Meatloaf uh, in the studio. Phil uh, used to have these little projects. We did uh, Starlight Express soundtrack in the studio, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of different people would come in and play. And we did, uh, I remember when Bob James came in, uh, I forget what album we were I think it was the Phoebe Snow record we were doing. Bob James came in, and the next thing I know, me and Doug were getting a call to do a Bob James session. <laughs> like, whoa, this is the big jazz guy. You know, so we walk into the studio and Bob James hands us charts and I panicked. I looked at Doug and I said, <laughs> Doug, I can't read this. So Doug looks at it and he goes, all right, I'll tell you what, just watch me. It's not that difficult. <laughs> watch me and I'll tell you what, to, I'll guide you on what to do. And it, it went smooth. I don't think he ever knew I didn't read. Now, how do you guys do drummers? Keep conditioned because people don't, you know, we see drummers drum, but it, it's, it's a physical workout, man. I mean, how do you, you know, and, and being, you know, on the road where it's, you know, people you don't you, in the beginning, at least when you're younger, you don't eat healthy, you know, things like that. How do you, how do you keep conditioned to play the drums? Because it, it's, you know, when you're playing with Billy, it's probably like two, two, three hour shows. You're constantly moving. Did you have to work out before? Did you have routine you did before? Or was it just that your every night your workout was drumming? Well, in the words of my dear friend, uh, Danny Seraphine from Chicago, we play a very violent instrument. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in the beginning, youth was on our side. I mean, you know, I was 24 when I got with Billy. So that was easy. But then as you get older, it starts to get harder. Luckily, you're in the band with a guy who's the lead singer and piano player that's the same age as you. So the bigger he got, the more uh, like it would be like if you play the show one day, you have to have the next day off. If you play two shows in a row, you have to have two days off to recuperate. So it didn't get more difficult. Uh, it, it actually got easier uh, as we uh, got bigger. And, um, yeah, then you get you're staying at hotels that have gyms. I started swimming after a while uh, just to, to stay physical. Yeah, you have to eat right, that kind of stuff. So you've had this great career, and now I know you also got involved with Little Kids Rock. How did you get involved with that program? I got a call from uh, a friend, Peter Stairs, with Sabian Symbols. And he said, Sammy uh, Thimbles well, used to donate um, equipment to Little Kids Rock. And um, he said, there's this organization that's fairly new, and um, they're up at a school in Harlem, and they're having uh, the press come. And the press said, if they can get somebody from a famous band there, they will give them more coverage. So would you like to go? And I said, yeah, I'm there. And that's how it started. When I saw that first Little Kids Rock event, it was in a classroom with just a couple of kids. But it was so cool what they were doing, like putting, uh, giving free lessons and and uh, instruments to kids in underprivileged schools and whether the music curriculum was taken out of the school to put it back in again. 
uh, I thought this is this is fantastic because I don't know what I would have done without music. I don't know where I would be today. It's a great. I mean, it's a great thing. I mean, yeah, because you know that's that's one thing I hate now. It's like you know, I mean, I. Personally, I personally don't play music. My brother drummed, and you know our school is very enhanced with the arts. But that's one thing that bothers me is when people start taking away the arts. It's sad because music is such a big part of us, and it's good that you know, you know, people like you can can help stuff out and keep that going on. Yeah, I, lo- I love doing it. You know, it's funny because you know they say uh, 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 sports is a team effort, and and yeah, but you know you get a baseball players watch a baseball game and. The, the, the pitcher throws the ball, and the guy hits it, and it goes into the outfield. If he doesn't catch it, he'll, he'll get it on the bounce and throw it to the second baseman And by the time the guy stops. So not everybody's in the game. In a band, the drummer counts to four, you're all in. Right. You know? and, if you make a mis- and if you make a mistake, you've got to go back to the beginning again. You know? So it's really a team uh, builder, uh, music. Now, Tony. Totally- you know, just go... Just going on the road with people, you gotta like them, right? You, know, you gotta know how to get along with people. Now, now talking about the band, what was it like when you you were nominated into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame? And is that a big is it a big honor? That was a big honor because me and Richie and Russell, uh, and well, Doug has passed away, but me and Richie and Russell and Doug, we didn't we didn't play for thirty five years together. You know, Richie left the band right after Glass Houses, right before Nylon Curtain. And then Russell and Doug left uh, after the Bridge tour. So, and I was there the longest. So we didn't play together for a long time. So being nominated into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame was a a chance for us to get back together again. And then we got to play three or four songs that night. And that's when it clicked that we said, you know what? There's a lot of tribute bands out there making a lot of money playing the stuff that we created. Why don't we play it? You know? So that, that was a great thing, to be with the guys again. And the, it was like we never left each other. Uh, the same funny jokes, the same personalities. It, it was just a great thing to do. And is that when you formed the Lords of the 52nd Street? That's when it started, right there. That's when the talk started. Yeah. And now, did you guys play gigs as that band? We, uh, we're playing a gig this weekend. As a matter of fact, we're playing at the Patchwork Theater on Long Island this weekend. So now, what do you guys play? Do you play, what kind of, do you play Billy Joel music? Do you play other kind of music? What do you play? What do you play? Uh, do you play any original music? Or what are you guys playing? Uh, we play all Billy's stuff. Because it, we got a, a, you know, a, I don't want to call him a fake Billy. He's a great artist. His name is Dave Clark. He's a great singer, piano player. And um, he does the Billy part. So there's me on drums, Richie on sax, Russell. And we have a second guitar player and a, a bass player and, a sec- and another keyboard player. And we do the Billy songs. Now, the thing is that our Billy sings in the original key of the record, where the real Billy... <laughs> has dropped the keys to the records. And there's no one in the band that Billy has that has played on the records except Billy. So there's more. when you come to see us, you hear the songs in the original key with more people that played on the record than when you go see Billy. <laughs> <laughs> now, now are, are the crowds digging it? Do you, get a, do you have a good following? Oh, they freaking love it. You're kidding? They love it. 
what do you think when you guys play, what is the most popular song to the audiences, now audiences? Because you probably get parents bringing their kids. What is you think? Right. Or the, what do you think are the top three songs when you guys play that are most appreciated and that seem to have a universal appeal to all ages? It's funny. They, they want to hear Caesar and Time Restaurant. They want to hear that one, you know, because they got the guys that really played it. You know, Richie plays that saxophone. That's Richie playing the saxophone. You know, uh, they love All of the Good Die Young. And it's funny. There's a sleeper in there. We do Until the Night, which was on the 52nd Street album. Right. They love that one. People love that one. Because Russell sings it, and it really, he does a great job. See, that's so cool. Now, do you do any more studio work these days, or are you just chilling out, playing with these guys, and just enjoying life? Well, I have another band called the Slim Kings. Uh, we write our own material, and we, we get a lot of placements on TV shows. And um, it's with two other guys. It's drums, bass, and guitar. The guitar player sings. And um, we, we're playing tomorrow night in this club in Long Island City. And uh, it's great. The guys in the band. Now, I I love classic rock music because I, I was part of the people that created classic rock music, with what is classic rock now. But I never intended to be uh, noted for being in another kind of classic rock band when I got after Billy. So the guys that I have now, the bass player is 29, and the guitar player is 31. So... They're young guys, so you got the old school guy me with the old flavor and the new new ideas from the other two. So, you know, like today in today's music, nostalgia is very big. Like Bruno Mars, you can tell he listened to James Brown and Prince, you know. Adele, you can tell she listened to Dusty Springfield, you know. So that kind of thing is happening now. So me being in the band and still having that that. When you hear the Slim Kings, it's like, you know, I, it sounds familiar, but I know I never heard it before. See, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, you know what? Uh, yeah. See, an hour flies, man. Uh, this is great talking to you. I, yeah. I, I want to thank you for coming on. It was, it's, I, I love, I don't know what it is. It's me and drummers. I have all these drummers on. Maybe because my older brother was a drummer, but I always get drummers, actor, character actors and drummers. That's what I get. But I want to thank you. Not well, now. because you'll, you'll get drummers because... Rick Redman was a drummer. He told me. Right. I'm a drummer. I'll probably tell him he's a drummer. Exactly. Because <laughs> I love drummers. Now, do you tweet at all? Are you on Twitter? I am. Okay, what's your Twitter? Don't ask me. <laughs> okay. People Google... No, okay. People Google Liberty DeVito uh, and just follow yeah. him. Go look up his work. Uh, check out what he's doing. I want to thank you for coming on, people. So follow him. People, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, www.coopertalk.net. I have over 570 episodes there. You can email me, Cooper, nice. at coopertalk.net. Also, Instagram is coopertalk1. Words with friends, coopertalk1. And on Instagram, you'll just see me promoting the show pretty much and doing pictures of healthy food. Because you know when I had that heart problem a few years ago, I wrote the cookbook. So uh -huh. go, go to my website, stopthesalt.com, people. It's, a, it's 120 recipes, low-sodium recipes, easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. No big, long lists of ingredients. They're easy to make. You'll get healthy. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. Or you can go to stopthesalt.com. It makes a great uh, stocking stuffer. And at stopthesalt.com, I make more money. But yet your people are still buying on Amazon and I'm making less than half what I make. Anyway, so people, 
Google Liberty DeVito. Go watch his drumming. You can find stuff on YouTube of him. Just, you know, look at an old Billy Joel video. You'll see him jamming. Uh, once again, follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. Keep supporting the show. Keep listening to the live music when you get a chance. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.